This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, helping you unlock money you didn't know you had. Members-only discounts that can save you tons. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Christine Ross for Libby Snymer. There's a volunteering crisis in Canada and how to maintain happiness in your life. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. British Columbia is bringing in a new regulation immediately to ensure diabetes patients don't face a shortage of the drug Ozempic touted for its weight loss side effects. The change will ensure patients needing Ozempic to treat their type 2 diabetes will continue to have access to that drug and others that may require it in the future. It will also help prevent online or mail order sales to people outside of Canada. The change comes after it was discovered that 15% of Ozempic prescriptions were being filled at Vancouver locations for shipment to the U.S. As France prepares to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64 amid nationwide protests, a new bombshell report in the U.K. finds the state pension age there may have to rise to 70 as the government grapples with increasing pressure on public finances. The report from the Institute for Fiscal Studies warns millions of people are set to face a delayed retirement, and those in their 30s and 40s are being encouraged to brace for a state pension as high as 70. The IFS cited Britain's aging population as a reason. The current retirement age in the UK is 66, but a gradual rise to 68 is likely by 2044. The White House issued an executive order this week to increase support for family caregivers and long-term care workers, among many others. The order directs the Department of Health and Human Services to consider redistributing money to ensure there are enough home care workers for seniors and people with disabilities enrolled in Medicaid. It asks the agency to offer more support to family caregivers when a loved one is discharged from the hospital. Americans lost a record-breaking almost $9 billion to scams last year, with the most common, the imposter scams. That's an increase of 30% from just the year before, and Zoomers are impacted more. The median amount was 1000 for victims 70 and older, compared with about 550 for those in their 20s. The Federal Trade Commission says the rising cost of these crimes is staggering, considering that three years ago, Americans lost just $3.5 million to fraud, including identity theft. In Canada last year, over 56,000 Canadians fell victim to fraud, totaling 530 million in losses. India is on pace to soon become the world's most populous nation. The UN says the country will have an estimated 1.4 billion people by the middle of this year, when it will surpass China by nearly 3 million, which has seen a drop in fertility rates. Both countries combined make up more than one-third of the planet's 8 billion people. Liz Cheney has a memoir and a warning coming out this fall. In Oath and Honor, she writes about her estrangement from former President Donald Trump and the Republican Party in the aftermath of the January 6th siege of the U.S. Capitol. 
Cheney is the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney and had been a leading Republican voice for years. But she parted with many of her colleagues over Trump's false claims of voter fraud. I'm Christine Ross, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. 65% of organizations across Canada are facing a volunteer shortage, and the decline is leaving organizations that depend on volunteerism struggling to move forward post-COVID. As we wrap up National Volunteer Week that celebrates Canada's 24 million volunteers, we look at how the pandemic has created a critical shortage of volunteers, many are Zoomers, who donate their time to help others. We reached Dr. Megan Conway, President and CEO of Volunteer Canada. Megan Conway, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm pleased to be here. So we all know the pandemic forced a number of volunteers away, many of whom are Zoomers, older adults who, who like to volunteer. Where are we at now? I have heard some staggering stats, like 65% of organizations across Canada are facing a volunteer shortage. Yes, uh, Christine, sadly, those numbers are consistent from what we're hearing um, from our organizations. Volunteer Canada represents 1,100 charities and nonprofits across the country and businesses also. And we're just hearing that volunteers have not returned in the same way um, post-pandemic. So there's been, a, there's been a bit of a gap there in terms of folks returning to volunteering. So how will the gap be filled if those volunteers come back? What kinds of changes can we see in how people engage? You know, one of the, uh, we've seen that the pandemic has really disrupted um, all of our life for sure. And, and we know that for seniors or older adults in particular, they're um, more concerned about health and safety. So we know that for organizations that are really interested in bringing older adults back to volunteer, um, they really have to ensure their words and actions are aligned, especially around health and safety protocols. There was some great research done out of um, Volunteer Victoria that looked at the specific impact of um, volunteering and, and COVID um, health measures and how older adults were impacted specifically. Um, so that research really speaks to the need for um, health and safety protocols that are in place and uh, a strong degree of trust between the organization and the volunteer itself. So older volunteers or older adults are still looking to volunteer, um, but they just need to do it in different ways. We also know that virtual volunteering has made uh, a huge surge coming out of the pandemic and that for older adults that are feeling really uh, skilled on on computers and, and virtual um, uh, mechanisms, there's a great way for them to reconnect through volunteering as well. Interesting. So this is almost a double whammy because we also have an aging population. How will volunteerism change in the future in, in order to attract, I assume, more younger volunteers? Well, you know, I think that's a really important question. We know that young people on average um, participate in higher numbers. Seniors give uh, historically given the most amount of their time. Um, although there have been bigger numbers of young people that have volunteered. And I think um, within the country, we're feeling it, facing a pretty significant crisis. We know that um, demand or need in community has gone way up. We know that individuals are relying on frontline services like Meals on Wheels or food banks in greater numbers, or even, um, you know, seniors that might feel a little bit isolated do well if they have um, a companion or someone who checks in on them through a volunteer service. Um, so we know that those those needs in communities are not going away, and and yet we don't, I think, have it figured out in terms of how we're going to reengage and reimagine our volunteering models to address those growing needs now and into the future. So I think we have a, a challenge on our hands. We're talking about the need for a national action strategy on volunteering. It was identified in a 2019 Senate report, and so our organization is quite committed to this notion of um, looking at what a national action strategy might do to support um, new models 
new data and uh, new approaches to volunteering. So tell me about this year's national theme and and how many people right across Canada are volunteering? So we know that historically, and we're going back on data from, from 2018, there were approximately 79% of Canadians who indicated that they were participating in either formal volunteering or informal volunteering. Um, and informal volunteering is where you might um, know that your neighbor next door is, is um, maybe going through um, some kind of a health treatment. You might be volunteering to bring them some food as an informal gesture, right? So that's an example of informal volunteering. Um, this year's National Volunteer Week theme is um, Volunteering Weaves Us Together, and it really speaks to the ways in which individual actions, whether they be um, informal actions like the one I identified or more formally, you know, volunteering your time at an organization, those small actions really contribute to strengthening our social fabric, and they're needed now more than ever. And so, um, you know, this year's National Volunteer Week is really about celebrating and recognizing all of those acts that individual volunteers do in communities to weave our weave our community and our country together. Other than virtual volunteering, have you seen other different trends crop up? I've read in some communities they're taking more of a team approach. So if there's a group, um, let's say older adults who are volunteering and one or two can't make it, there's always someone else to rely on. Absolutely. We've seen that as a great trend where there's a sense of a, a collective that are participating for sure. Um, I can say my, my mother falls into the older adult demographic, and I know that if she's not able to pick up her shift as a volunteer at a, a local bingo for whatever reason, she's able to call on her peers in that group and they're able to show up uh, and fill in for her. So I know that that's a really great approach because it also reduces the pressure on the individual for whatever reason. You know, life happens. We can't always um, show up if, in, in certain circumstances. And so having that team approach is really a great uh, solution. We're also seeing this notion or this idea of micro-volunteering. So, you know, you might be um, only able to contribute a small amount of time. You might have a busy schedule. Maybe you're taking care of uh, grandkids or you're um, maybe taking care of an elderly or, um, you know, a sibling or somebody who's sick. And so you might have other demands on you and you might say, well, I'm interested in giving back, but I only have, you know, half an hour so this concept of micro-volunteering is another concept that organizations are implementing to be able to uh, recruit and retain volunteers. Um, and so we think that organizations that are really creative and are adaptive are the ones that are going to resolve some of these crunch scenarios that they're finding themselves in. And, and um, But that also requires um, an investment, Christine. We know that that, that just can't happen um, without any resources. Organizations need basic for funding to be able to come up with those innovative solutions to address the challenges they're facing. Megan Conway, thank you for this. Yeah, thanks so much. I hope, uh, you know, I hope there's an opportunity for your listeners to reach out to a local organization or to a volunteer center in their community and find ways to reconnect. We know that uh, this is a week to celebrate the contributions of volunteers across our country and that older adults are contributing in a ton of different ways and we're very appreciative for the contributions they make. That was Dr. Megan Conway, President and CEO of Volunteer Canada. I'm Christine Ross, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, Canada was just ranked 13th on the World Happiness Report. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, offering members-only discounts that can save you thousands of dollars a year. Find out more at carp.ca. are you? Research shows it's critical to overall well-being, affecting everything from our physical health, our relationships, and even our productivity at work. But there's a catch. 
the more you chase happiness, the more elusive it can be. In recent years, Canada has been consistently ranked as one of the happiest countries in the world. This year, of 137 countries ranked, Canada placed 13th, two positions higher than the U.S. So, what can Canada learn from the happiest countries? Libby Snymer set out to find out by speaking with the creator of the most popular course in Harvard's history, the Happiness Course, Dr. Tal Ben Shahar. Welcome, Dr. Ben Shahar. Thanks so much for being with us. Good to be here, Libby. Thank you for having me. So, it all comes down to personal relationships, right? Um, number one predictor of happiness is quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. And how do we make sure that those relationships are strong? People think you have a loved one, and it just stays like that. There are many misperceptions about relationships. First of all, that there are perfect relationships. There aren't. The best relationships have their ups and downs as well. Second, it's not like we meet the right person or best friend or ideal colleague, and then we live happily ever after. That just happens in fairy tales. In real life, we need to invest to work on the relationships, and that's key. And that's key for happiness in general. We don't just receive it; we have to work for it. And how important is it for these to be deep relationships, meaningful relationships? You know, we we need both. We need the um, the the fair weather relationships uh, at times. You know, the 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 highs. Um, at the same time, we also need the intimate relationships where we can open up, and that can happen with our relationships with uh, a romantic partner, a uh, family, uh, our friends. It can also happen at work. So deep, intimate relationships where we open up, we, where we are authentic, where we feel comfortable being ourselves, are very important for happiness. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that we learned during the pandemic was. The most casual relationships, you know, the the person who hands us the bread at the bakery or or a cup of coffee, that those relationships are really important too. Uh, absolutely, you know, work by uh, Professor Barbara Fredrickson from uh, UNC shows that every time we experience what she calls positivity resonance. Which is basically experiencing the same positive emotion together. So it could be, you know, looking at a, at a at a puppy running and then looking at one another and smiling. That is a manifestation of love. That is the physiological equivalent of experiencing love. So every time we smile at someone and they smile back at us, every time we share a moment, these are important experiences for our overall well-being. What about gratitude? You say that is one of the keys. Yeah, my favorite word is the word appreciate. The word appreciate has two meanings. The first meaning of the word is to say thank you for something, to be grateful, and it's a it's a nice thing to to, to do. Uh, you know, every religion, most philosophies uh, espouse gratitude. But the word appreciate has a second meaning, which is to grow in value. You know the money appreciates in the bank or in good times the economy appreciates. The two meanings of the word appreciate are intimately intertwined because when we appreciate the good in our life, the good appreciates. We have more of it. How can we make the appreciation appreciate?、Uh, I've read that 
we actually each have a sort of set point of happiness. It's genetic, uh, and that accounts for about half of it. And another 40% is what we go through in life, but that really we keep, you know, reverting back to our set point. Yes. So we revert back to our set point because so many of us have a misperception, misunderstanding of what actually contributes to our happiness. Uh, you know, it's not, uh, you know, how much money we make. It's not uh, how much uh, praise or accolades we receive. Yeah, these are nice and they lead to a spike, temporary spike in our happiness levels. If we want to raise our base level of happiness, what we need is to focus on things like relationships, like appreciation and savoring, um, like the, uh, the mind-body connection, you know, exercise regularly, like uh, being lifelong learners, being curious. These are all things that can change our base level of happiness. If, once again, we work at them, we are consistent in applying these. And how important is it, finally, just to be happy with what we have? No, this is, of course, um, a very important part of happiness, which is uh, acceptance. And not acceptance in the form of resignation, but acceptance, for example, that uh, part of life is being sad that part of life is uh, experiencing anger or envy or frustration or anxiety. And when we accept that these emotions are part of our constitution, that they're natural, we actually open ourselves up to more joy. In a sentence, the first step to happiness is really allowing in unhappiness. Dr. Talben Shahar, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Thank you. That was Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, founder of Happiness Studies Academy at Harvard University. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Christine Ross for Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.